2: Chapter One of The Mystery of Edwin Drood. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Alan Chant. The Mystery of Edwin Drood, the Unfinished Novel by Charles Dickens. Chapter One The Dawn. AN ANCIENT ENGLISH CATHEDRAL TOWER? HOW CAN THE ANCIENT ENGLISH CATHEDRAL TOWER BE HERE? THE WELL-KNOWN MASSIVE GREY SQUARE TOWER OF ITS OLD CATHEDRAL? HOW CAN THAT BE HERE? THERE IS NO SPIKE OF RUSTY IRON IN THE AIR, BETWEEN THE EYES AND IT, FROM ANY POINT OF THE REAL PROSPECT. WHAT IS THE SPIKE THAT INTERVENES, AND WHO HAS SET IT UP? Maybe it is set up by the Sultan's orders for the impaling of a horde of Turkish robbers, one by one. It is so for cymbals clash, and the Sultan goes by to his palace in long procession. Ten thousand scimitars flash in the sunlight, and thrice ten thousand dancing-girls strew flowers. Then... Follow white elephants, caparisoned in countless gorgeous colours, and infinite in number and attendance. Still the cathedral tower rises in the background, where it cannot be, and still no writhing figure is on the grim spike. Stay! Is the spike so low a thing as the rusty spike on the top of a post of an old bedstead? that has tumbled all awry? Some vague period of drowsy laughter must be devoted to the consideration of this possibility. Shaking from head to foot, the man whose scattered consciousness had thus fantastically pieced itself together, at length rises, supports his trembling frame upon his hands, and looks around. He is in the meanest and closest of small rooms. Through the ragged window-curtain the light of early day steals in from a miserable court. He lies dressed across a large unseemly bed, upon a bedstead that has indeed given way under the weight upon it. Lying also dressed, and also across the bed not longwise, are a Chinaman, a and a haggard woman. The two first are in a sleep or stupor, the last is blowing at a kind of pipe to kindle it, and as she blows and shading it with her lean hand, concentrates its red spark of light, it serves in the dim morning as a lamp to show him what he sees of her. Another! says this woman, in a querulous, rattling whisper.
0: Have another.
2: He looks about him with his hand to his forehead. Ye've smoked as many as five since you come in at midnight, the woman goes on as she chronically complains. Poor me, poor me, my head is so bad.
0: Them two come in after ye. Oh, poor me, the business is slack, is slack. Few chinamen about the docks, and few Alaskas, and no ships coming in these say. Here's another ready for you, dearie. Ye'll remember like a good soul, won't ye, that the market price is dreffle high just now more nor three shillings and sixpence for a thimbleful. And you will remember that nobody but me, and Jack Chinaman t'other side of the court, but he can't do it as well as me. That's the true secret of mixing it. You'll pay up accordingly, dearie, won't you?"
2: She blows at the pipe as she speaks. And occasionally bubbling at it, inhales much of its contents.
0: Oh me, oh me! My lungs is weak, my lungs is bad. It's nearly ready for you, dearie. Oh poor me, poor me! My poor hand shakes like to drop off. I see you coming too, and I says to my poor self. I'll have another ready for him, and he'll bear in mind the market price of opium, and pay according. Oh, my poor head, I makes my pipes of old penny-ink bottles, you see, dearie, this is one, and I fits in a mouthpiece this way, and I takes my mixture out of this thimble with this little horn-spoon. And so I feels, dearie, all my poor nerves. I got heaven's hard drunk for sixteen year afore I took to this, but this don't hurt me not to speak of, and it takes away the hunger as well as wittles, dearie.
2: She hands him the nearly emptied pipe, and sinks back, turning over on her face. He rises unsteadily from the bed, lays the pipe upon the hearthstone, draws back the ragged curtain, and looks with repugnance at his three companions. He notices that the woman has opium-smoked herself into a strange likeness of the Chinaman. His form of cheek, eye, and temple and his colour are repeated in her. Said Chinaman convulsively wrestles with one of his many gods or devils, perhaps, and snarls horribly. The lascar laughs and dribbles at the mouth. The hostess is still. What visions can she have? The waking man muses as he turns her face towards him and stands looking down at it. Visions of many butchers' shops and public-houses, and much credit. Of an increase of hideous customers, and this horrible bedstead set upright again, and this horrible court swept clean, what can she rise to under any quantity of opium? Higher than that, eh? He bends down his ear to listen to her mutterings unintelligible. As he watches the spasmodic shoots and darts that break out of her face and limbs, like fitful lightning out of a dark sky, some contagion in them seizes upon him, insomuch that he has to withdraw himself to a lean armchair by the hearth, placed there perhaps for such emergencies, and to sit in it holding tight, until he has got the better of this unclean spirit of imitation. Then he comes back, pounces on the Chinaman, and seizing him with both hands by the throat, turns him violently on the bed. The Chinaman clutches the aggressive hands, resists, gasps, and protests. What did you say? A watchful pause unintelligible. Slowly loosening his grasp as he listens to the incoherent jargon with an attentive frown, he turns to the lascar and fairly drags him forth upon the floor. As he falls the lascar starts into a half-risen attitude, glares with his eyes, lashes about him fiercely with his arms, and draws a phantom knife. It then becomes apparent that the woman has taken possession of this knife for safety's sake, for she too starting up and restraining and expostulating with him, the knife is visible in her dress, not in his, when they drowsily drop back side by side. There has been chattering and clattering enough between them, but to no purpose. When any distinct word has been flung into the air, it has no sense or sequence, wherefore, unintelligible, is again the comment of the watcher, made with some reassured nodding of his head and a gloomy smile. He then lays certain silver money on the table, finds his hat, gropes his way down the broken stairs, gives a good morning to some rat ridden doorkeeper, in bed in a black hutch beneath the stairs, and passes out. That same afternoon the massive grey square tower of an old cathedral rises before the sight of a jaded traveller. The bells are going for daily Vesper service, and he must needs attend it, one would say, from his haste to reach the open cathedral door. The choir are getting on their solid white robes in a hurry when he arrives among them, gets on his own robe, and falls into the procession filing into service. Then the sacristan locks the iron-barred gates that divide the sanctuary from the chancel, and all of the procession, having scuttled into their places, hide their faces. And then the intoned words, When the wicked man... Rise among groins of arches and beams of roof, awakening muttered thunder. End of chapter one. Read by Alan Chant of Tunbridge, Kent, England, during the summer of two thousand seven. Chapter 2 of The Mystery of Edwin Drood. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Alan Chant. The Mystery of Edwin Drood, the unfinished novel by Charles Dickens. Chapter 2 A Dean, and a chapter also. Whosoever has observed that sedate and clerical bird, the Rook, may perhaps have noticed that when he wings his way homeward towards nightfall, in a sedate and clerical company, two Rooks will suddenly detach themselves from the rest, will retrace their flight for some distance, and will there poise and linger, conveying to mere men, the fancy that it is of some occult importance to the body politic that this artful couple should pretend to have renounced connection with it. Similarly, service being over in the old cathedral with the square tower, and the choir scuffling out again, and divers venerable persons of rook-like aspect dispersing, two of these latter retrace their steps and walk together in the echoing close not only is the day waning but the year the low sun is fiery and yet cold behind the monastic ruin and the virginia creeper on the cathedral wall has showered half its deep red leaves down on the pavement there has been rain this afternoon and a wintry shudder goes among the little pools On the cracked, uneven flagstones, and through the giant elm-trees, as they shed a gust of tears. Their fallen leaves lie strewn thickly about. Some of these leaves, in a timid rush, seek sanctuary within the low-arched cathedral door. But two men coming out resist them, and cast them forth again with their feet. This done, one of the two locks the door with a goodly key, and the other flits away with a folio music-book. Mr. Jasper was that, Tope? Yes, Mr. Dean. He has stayed late. Yes, Mr. Dean, I have stayed with him, your reverence. He has been took a little poorly. Say, taken, Tope, to the Dean. The younger rook interposes in a low tone with this touch of correction, as who should say, You may offer bad grammar to the laity, or the humbler clergy, not to the dean. Mr. Tope, chief verger and showman, and accustomed to be high with excursion parties, declines with a silent loftiness to perceive that any suggestion has been tendered to him. And when and how has Mr. Jasper been taken? For As Mr. Crisparkle has remarked, it is better to say taken. Taken, repeats the dean. When and how has Mr. Crisparkle been taken? Taken, sir, Tope differentially murmurs. Poorly, Tope. Why, sir, Mr. Jasper was that breathed. Uh, I wouldn't say that breathed, Tope. Mr. Crisparkle interposes, with the same touch as before, Not English, to the Dean. "'Breathed to that extent,' the Dean, not unflattered by this indirect homage, Condescendingly remarks, would be preferable. "'Mr. Jasper's breathing was so remarkably short.' Thus discreetly does Mr. Tope work his way round this sunken rock when he came in, that it distressed him mightily to get his notes out, which was perhaps the cause of his having a kind of fit upon him after a little. His memory grew dazed. Mr. Tope, with his eyes on the Reverend Mr. Crisparkle, shoots this word out, as defying him to improve upon it. And a dimness and giddiness crept over him as strange as ever I saw. "'though he didn't seem to mind it particularly himself. "'However, a little time and a little water brought him out of his days.' "'Mr. Tope repeats the word and its emphasis, with the air of saying, "'As I have made a success, I'll make it again.' "'And Mr. Jasper has gone home quite himself, has he?' asked the Dean." your reverence he has gone home quite himself and i'm glad to see he's having his fire kindled up for it's chilly after the wet and a cathedral has both a damp feel and a damp touch this afternoon and he was very shivery they all three looked towards an old stone gatehouse crossing the close with an arched thoroughfare passing beneath it Through its latticed window, a fire shines out upon the fast-darkening scene, involving in shadow the pendant masses of ivy and creeper covering the building's front. As the deep cathedral bell strikes the hour, a ripple of wind goes through these at a distance, then a ripple of the solemn sound that hums through tomb and tower, broken niche and defaced statue— in the pile close at hand. "'Is Mr. Jasper's nephew with him?' the dean asks. "'No, sir,' replied the verger, "'but expected. There's his own solitary shadow betwixt his two windows, the one looking this way, and the one looking down into the ice-street, drawing his own curtains now.' "'Well, well,' says the dean, with a sprightly air of breaking up the little conference. I hope Mr. Jasper's heart may not be too much set upon his nephew. Our affections, however laudable in this transitory world, should never master us. We should guide them, guide them. I find I am not disagreeably reminded of my dinner by hearing my dinner-bell." perhaps mr crisparkle you will be for going home look in on jasper certainly mr dean and tell him that you had the kindness to desire to know how he was i do so do so certainly wished to know how he was by all means wished to know how he was with a pleasant air of patronage the dean as nearly cooks his quaint hat as a dean in good spirits may, and directs his comely gaiters towards the ruddy dining-room of the snug old red-brick house, where he is at present in residence with Mrs. Dean and Miss Dean. Mr. Crisparkle, minor canon, fair and rosy, and perpetually pitching himself head foremost into all the deep water running in the surrounding country, Mr. Chris Sparkle, minor canon, early riser, musical, classical, cheerful, kind, good-natured, social, contented, and boy-like. Mr. Chris Sparkle, minor canon and good man, lately coach upon the chief pagan high-roads, but since promoted by a patron, grateful for a well-taught son, to his present Christian beat, betakes himself to the gatehouse on his way home to his early tea. "'Sorry to hear from Tope that you have not been well, Jasper.' "'Oh, it was nothing, nothing. You look a little worn. Do I? Oh, I don't think so. What is better, I don't feel so. Tope has made too much of it, I suspect. It's his trade to make the most of everything appertaining to the cathedral, you know.' "'I may tell the Dean. I call expressly from the Dean that you are all right again?" The reply, with a slight smile, is, "'Certainly, with my respects and thanks to the Dean.' "'I am glad to hear that you expect young Drood. I expect the dear fellow every moment. Ah! he will do you more good than a doctor, Jasper!' "'More good than a dozen doctors for I love him dearly, and I don't love doctors or doctor's stuff. Mr. Jasper is a dark man of some six-and-twenty, with thick, lustrous, well-arranged black hair and whiskers. He looks older than he is, as dark men often do. His voice is deep and good, his face and figure are good, his manner is a little sombre. His room is a little sombre, and may have had its influence in forming his manner. It is mostly in shadow. Even when the sun shines brilliantly, it seldom touches the grand piano in the recess, or the folio music-books on the stand, or the bookshelves on the wall, or the unfinished picture of a blooming schoolgirl hanging over the chimney-piece, her flowing brown hair tied with a blue riband and her beauty remarkable for a quite childish almost babyish touch of saucy discontent comically conscious of itself there is not the least artistic merit in this picture which is a mere daub but it is clear that the painter has made it humorously one might almost say revengefully like the original we shall miss you jasper At the alternate musical Wednesdays, to-night, But no doubt you are best at home. Good-night. God bless you. Tell me, shepherds, tell me, tell me, Have you seen, have you seen, have you seen, have you seen My flora pass this way? Melodiously good minor canon the Reverend Septimus Crisparkle thus delivers himself in musical rhythm as he withdraws his amiable face from the doorway and conveys it downstairs. Sounds of recognition and greeting pass between the Reverend Septimus and somebody else at the stairfoot. Mr. Jasper listens, starts from his chair, and catches a young fellow in his arms, exclaiming, My dear Edwin! my dear jack so glad to see you get off your great-coat bright boy and sit down here in your own corner your feet are not wet pull your boots off do pull your boots off my dear jack i am as dry as a bone don't coddly. there's a good fellow i like anything better than being coddled. with the check upon him of being unsympathetically restrained in a genial outburst of enthusiasm Mr. Jasper stands still, and looks on intently at the young fellow, divesting himself of his outward coat, hat, gloves, and so forth. Once for all, a look of intentness and intensity, a look of hungry, exacting, watchful, and yet devoted affection, is always now and ever afterwards ON THE JASPER FACE, WHENEVER THE JASPER FACE IS ADDRESSED IN THIS DIRECTION. AND WHENEVER IT IS SO ADDRESSED, IT IS NEVER, ON THIS OCCASION OR ON ANY OTHER, DIVIDEDLY ADDRESSED, IT IS ALWAYS CONCENTRATED. NOW I AM RIGHT, AND NOW I'LL TAKE MY CORNER, JACK. ANY DINNER, JACK? MR. JASPER OPENS A DOOR AT THE UPPER END OF THE ROOM, AND DISCLOSES A SMALL INNER ROOM, PLEASANTLY LIGHTED AND PREPARED, wherein a comely dame is in the act of setting dishes on table. "'What a jolly old Jack it is!' cries the young fellow, with a clap of his hands. "'Look here, Jack, tell me, whose birthday is it?' "'Not yours, I know,' Mr Jasper answers, pausing to continue. "'Not mine, you know! No, not mine! I know! Pussies!' Fixed as the look the young fellow meets is, there is yet in it some strange power of suddenly including the sketch over the chimney-piece. "'Pussies, Jack! We must drink many happy returns to her. Come, uncle, take your dutiful and sharp-set nephew in to dinner.' As the boy, for he is little more, lays a hand on Jasper's shoulder, Jasper cordially and gaily lays a hand on his shoulder, and so, marseillet-wise, they go in to dinner.' and lord here's mrs tope cries the boy lovelier than ever never you mind me master edwin retorts the verger's wife i can take care of myself you can't you're much too handsome give me a kiss because it's pussy's birthday i'll pussy you young man if i was pussy as you call her mrs tope blushingly retorts after being saluted your uncle's much too wrapped up in you that's where it is he makes so much of you that it's my opinion you think you've only to call your pussies by the dozen to make em come you forget mrs tope mr jasper interposes taking his place at the table with a genial smile and so do you ned that uncle and nephew are words prohibited here by common consent and express agreement for what we are about to receive his holy name be praised done like the dean witness edwin drood please to carve jack for i can't this sally ushers in the dinner little to the present purpose or to any purpose is said while it is in the course of being disposed of at length the cloth is drawn and a dish of walnuts and a decanter of rich-coloured sherry are placed upon the table i say tell me jack the young fellow then flows on do you really and truly feel as if the mention of our relationship divided us at all i don't uncles as a rule ned are so much older than their nephews is the reply that I have that feeling instinctively. As a rule, I may be. But what is the difference in age of half a dozen years or so? And some uncles in large families are even younger than their nephews. By George, I wish it was the case with us. Why? Because if it was, I'd take the lead with you, Jack, and be as wise as begone dull care that turned a young man grey and begon'dal care. That turned an old man to clay. Alloa! Jack, don't drink! Why not? Asks why not on Pussy's birthday, And no happy returns proposed. Pussy, Jack, and many of them. Happy returns, I mean. Laying an affectionate and laughing touch On the boy's extended hand, As if they were at once his giddy head and his light heart, Mr. Jasper drinks the toast in silence. Hip, 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 and nine times nine, and one to finish with, and all that understood. Hooray, hooray, hooray! And now, Jack, let's have a little talk about Pussy. Two pairs of nutcrackers? Pass me one, and take the other. Crack. How's Pussy getting on, Jack? With her music. Fairly. What a dreadfully conscientious fellow you are, Jack! But I know, Lord bless you, inattentive, isn't she? She can learn anything, if she will. IF she will! EGAD, that's it! But if she won't— CRACK ON MR. JASPER'S PART How's she looking, Jack? Mr. Jasper's concentrated face again includes the portrait, as he returns— Very like your sketch, indeed. I am a little proud of it, says the young fellow, glancing up at the sketch with complacency, and then shutting one eye, and taking a corrected prospect of it over a level bridge of nutcrackers in the air. Not badly hit off from memory, but I ought to have caught that expression pretty well, for I have seen it often enough. Crack. ON EDWIN DROOD'S PART CRACK ON MR JASPER'S PART In point of fact, the former resumes, after some silent dipping among the fragments of walnut with an air of pique, I see it whenever I go to see Pussy. If I don't find it on her face, I leave it there. You know I do, Miss Scornful (coughs) Pert. With a twirl of the nutcrackers at the portrait. Crack, 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 slowly on Mr. Jasper's part, crack, sharply on the part of Edwin Drood. Silence on both sides. Have you lost your tongue, Jack? "'Have you found yours, Ned?' "'No, but really, it isn't, you know. After all—' Mr. Jasper lifts his dark eyebrows inquiringly. "'Isn't it unsatisfactory to be cut off from choice in such a matter? "'There, Jack, I'll tell you. If I could choose, "'I would choose pussy from all the pretty girls in the world.' "'But you have not got to choose.' "'That's what I complain of. "'My dead-and-gone father "'and pussy's dead-and-gone father "'must needs marry us together by anticipation. "'Why, the— "'Devil, I was going to say, "'if it had been respectful to their memory, "'couldn't they leave us alone?' "'Tut-tut, dear boy,' "'Mr. Jasper remonstrates "'in a tone of gentle depreciation. "'Tut-tut!' "'Yes, Jack, it's all very well for you. "'You can take it easily. "'Your life is not laid down to scale and lined and dotted out for you "'like a surveyor's plan. "'You have no uncomfortable suspicion that you are forced upon anybody, "'nor has anybody an uncomfortable suspicion that she is forced upon you, "'or that you are forced upon her. "'You can choose for yourself. "'Life for you is a plum with a natural bloom on it.' It hasn't been over-carefully wiped off for you. Don't stop, dear fellow, go on. Can I anyhow have hurt your feelings, Jack? How can you have hurt my feelings? Good heaven, Jack, you look frightfully ill. There's a strange film come over your eyes. Mr. Jasper, with a forced smile, stretches out his right hand as if at once to disarm apprehension and gain time to get better. After a while he says faintly, I have been taking opium for a pain, an agony that sometimes overcomes me. The effects of the medicine steal over me like a blight or a cloud, and pass. You see them in the act of passing, they will be gone directly look away from me they will go all the sooner with a scared face the younger man complies by casting his eyes downward at the ashes on the hearth not relaxing his own gaze on the fire but rather strengthening it with a fierce firm grip upon his elbow-chair the elder sits for a few moments rigid and then with thick drops standing on his forehead and a sharp catch of his breath becomes as he was before. On his so subsiding in his chair, his nephew gently and assiduously tends him while he quite recovers. When Jasper is restored, he lays a tender hand upon his nephew's shoulder, and, in a tone of voice less troubled than the purport of his words, indeed with something of raillery or banter in it, Thus addresses him, "'There is said to be a hidden skeleton in every house, "'but you thought there was none in mine, dear Ned.' "'Upon my life, Jack, I did think so. "'However, when I come to consider that even in Pussy's house, "'if she had one, and in mine, if I had one, "'you were going to say, but that I interrupted you in spite of myself,' what a quiet life mine is no whirl and uproar around me no distracting commerce or calculation no risk no change of place myself devoted to the art i pursue my business my pleasure i really was going to say something of the kind jack but you see you speaking of yourself almost necessarily leave out much that i should have put in for instance, I should have put in the foreground your being so much respected as lay presenter or, or lay clerk or whatever you call it of this cathedral. your enjoying the reputation of having done such wonders with the choir. your choosing your society and holding such an independent position in this queer old place, your gift of teaching. Why, even Pussy, who don't like being taught, says there never was such a master as you are. And your connection? Yes, I saw what you were tending to. I hate it. Hate it, Jack? Much bewildered. I hate it. The cramped monotony of my existence grinds me away by the grain— How does our service sound to you? Beautiful, quite celestial. It often sounds to me quite devilish. I am so weary of it. The echoes of my own voice among the arches seem to mock me with my daily drudging round. No wretched monk who droned his life away in that gloomy place before me can have been more tired of it than I am. He could take for relief, and did take, to carving demons out of the stools and seats and desks. What shall I do? Must I take to carving them out of my heart? I thought you had so exactly found your niche in life, Jack, Edwin Drood returns, astonished bending forward in his chair to lay a sympathetic hand on Jasper's knee, and looking at him with an anxious face. "'I know you thought so. They all think so.' "'Well, I suppose they do,' says Edwin, meditating aloud. "'Pussy thinks so.' "'When did she tell you that?' "'The last time I was here. You remember when? Three months ago.' How did she phrase it? Oh, she only said that she had become your pupil and that you were made for your vocation. The younger man glances at the portrait. The elder sees it in him. Anyhow, my dear Ned, Jasper resumes as he shakes his head with a grave cheerfulness, I must subdue myself to my vocation, which is much the same thing outwardly. "'It's too late to find another now. "'This is a confidence between us. "'It shall be sacredly preserved, Jack. "'I have reposed it in you, because I feel it, I assure you, "'because we are fast friends, "'and because you love and trust me as I love and trust you. "'Both hands, Jack.' "'As each stands, looking into the other's eyes, "'and as the uncle holds the nephew's hands,' The uncle thus proceeds. You know now, don't you, That even a poor monotonous chorister And grinder of music in his niche May be troubled by some stray sort of Ambition, aspiration, restlessness, dissatisfaction, What what shall we call it? Yes, dear Jack, and you will remember— My dear Jack, I only ask you, am I likely to forget what you've said with so much feeling? Take it as a warning, then. In the act of having his hands released, and of moving a step back, Edwin pauses for an instant to consider the application of these last words. The instant over, he says sensibly touched, I am afraid I am but a shallow surface kind of fellow-jack, and that my headpiece is none of the best. But I needn't say. I am young, and perhaps I shall not grow worse as I grow older. At all events, I hope I have something impressible within me, which feels, deeply feels, the disinterestedness of your painfully laying your inner self bare as a warning to me.' Mr. Jasper's steadiness of face and figure becomes so marvellous that his breathing seems to have stopped. I couldn't fail to notice, Jack, that it cost you a great effort, and that you were so very much moved, and very unlike your usual self. Of course, I knew that you were extremely fond of me, but I really was not prepared for your, as I may say, sacrificing yourself to me in that way. Mr. Jasper, becoming a breathing man again, without the smallest stage of transition between the two extreme states, lifts his shoulders, laughs, and waves his right arm. No, don't put the sentiment away, Jack, please don't, for I am very much in earnest. I have no doubt that unhealthy state of mind which you have so powerfully described is attended with some real suffering.' and is hard to bear. But let me assure you, Jack, as to the chances of it overcoming me, I don't think I am in the way of it. In some few months less than another year, you know, I shall carry Pussy off from school as Mrs. Edwin drood. I shall then go engineering into the East, and Pussy with me. And although we have our little tiffs now— arising out of a certain unavoidable flatness that attends our love-making, owing to its end being all settled beforehand. Still I have no doubt of our getting on capitally then, when it's done and can't be helped. In short, Jack, to go back to the old song I was freely quoting at dinner, and who knows old songs better than you? My wife shall dance, and I will sing, so merrily past the day.' Of pussies being beautiful, there cannot be a doubt. And when you are good besides, little Miss Impertinence, once more apostrophising the portrait, I'll burn your comic likeness and paint your music-master another. Mr. Jasper, with his head to his chin, and with an expression of musing benevolence on his face, has attentively watched every animated look and gesture attending the delivery of these words. He remains in that attitude after they are spoken, as if in a kind of fascination, attendant on his strong interest in the youthful spirit that he loves so well. Then he says with a quiet smile, You won't be warned then? No, Jack! "'You can't be warned, then?' "'No, Jack, not by you. "'Besides that I don't really consider myself in danger. "'I don't like you putting yourself in that position.' "'Shall we go and walk in the churchyard?' "'By all means. "'You won't mind my slipping out of it for half a moment to the nun's house "'and leaving a parcel there. "'Only gloves for a pussy, as many pairs of gloves as she is years old to-day.' "'Rather poetical, Jack!' "'Mr Jasper, still in the same attitude, murmurs. "'Nothing half so sweet in life, Ned. "'Here's the parcel in my grey-coat pocket. "'They must be presented to-night, or the poetry is gone. "'It's against regulations for me to call at night, "'but not to leave a packet. "'I am ready, Jack.' "'Mr Jasper dissolves his attitude.' And they go out together. End of Chapter Two, read by Alan Chant of Tunbridge, Kent, England, during the summer of two thousand and seven. Chapter Three of the Mystery of Edwin Drood. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Alan Chant The Mystery of Edwin Drood, the Unfinished Novel by Charles Dickens. Chapter 3 The Nun's House. For sufficient reasons, which this narrative will itself unfold as it advances, A fictitious name must be bestowed upon the old cathedral town. Let it stand in these pages as Cloisterham. It was once possibly known to the Druids by another name, and certainly to the Romans by another, and to the Saxons by another, and to the Normans by another, and a name more or less in the course of many centuries can be of little moment to its dusty chronicles an ancient city, Cloisterham, and no dwelling-place for any one with hankerings after the noisy world, a monotonous silent city, deriving an earthy flavour throughout from its cathedral crypt, and so abounding in vestiges of monastic graves, that the Cloisterham children grow small salad in the dust of abbots and abbesses, and make dirt-pies of nuns and friars, while every ploughman, in its outlying fields, renders to once puissant lord treasurers, archbishops, bishops, and such like, the attention which the ogre, in the story-book, desired to render to his unbidden visitor, and grinds their bones to make his bread. A drowsy city cloisterham, whose inhabitants seem to suppose, with an inconsistency more strange than rare, that all its changes lie behind it, and that there are no more to come. A queer moral to derive from antiquity, yet older than any traceable antiquity. So silent are the streets of Cloisterham, though prone to echo on the smallest provocation, that on a summer day the sun-blinds of its shop scarce dare to flap in the south wind, while the sun-browned tramps who pass along and stare quicken their limp a little, that they may the sooner get beyond the confines of its oppressive respectability. This is a feat not difficult of achievement, seeing that the streets of Cloisterham City are little more than one narrow street by which you can get into it and get out of it, the rest being mostly Disappointing yards with pumps in them, and no thoroughfare. Exception made of the cathedral close, And a paved Quaker settlement, in colour and general conformation, Very like a Quakeress's bonnet, up in a shady corner. In a word, a city of another and a bygone time is Cloisterham, With its hoarse cathedral bell, Its hoarse rooks hovering about the cathedral tower, its hoarser and less distinct rooks in the stalls far beneath. Fragments of old wall, saints' chapel, chapter-house, convent and monastery have got incongruously and obstructively built into many of its houses and gardens, much as kindred-jumbled notions have become incorporated into many of its citizens' minds. All things in it are of the past— Even its single pawnbroker takes in no pledges, nor has he for a long time, but offers vainly an unredeemed stock for sale, of which the costlier items are dim and pale old watches, apparently in a slow perspiration, tarnished sugar-tongs with ineffectual legs, and odd volumes of dismal books. The most abundant and the most agreeable evidences of progressing life in Cloisterham are the evidences of vegetable life in many gardens. Even its drooping and despondent little theatre has its poor strip of garden, receiving the foul fiend when he ducks from its stage into the infernal regions among scarlet beans or oyster-shells, according to the season of the year in the midst of cloisterham stands the nun's house a veritable brick edifice whose present appellation is doubtless derived from the legend of its conventual uses on the trim gate enclosing its old courtyard is a resplendent brass plate flashing forth the legend seminary for young ladies miss twinkleton the house front is so old and worn and the brass plate is so shining and staring that the general result has reminded imaginative strangers of a battered old beau with a large modern eyeglass stuck in his blind eye. Whether the nuns of yore, being a submissive rather than a stiff-necked generation, habitually bent their contemplative heads to avoid collision with the beams in the low ceilings of the many chambers of their house, whether they sat in its long low windows telling their beads for their mortification, instead of making necklaces of them for their adornment, whether they were ever walled up alive in odd angles and jutting gables of the building for having some ineradicable leaven of busy mother nature in them, which has kept the fermenting world alive ever since, these may be matters of interest to its haunting ghosts, if any, but constitute no item in Miss Twinkleton's half-yearly accounts, they are neither of Miss Twinkleton's inclusive regulars, nor of her extras. The lady who undertakes the poetical department of the establishment at so much, or so little a quarter, has no pieces in her list of recitals bearing on such unprofitable questions. As in some cases of drunkenness, and in others of animal magnetism, there are two states of consciousness which never clash, but each of which pursues its separate course as though it were continuous instead of broken. Thus, if I hide my watch when I am drunk, I must be drunk again before I can remember where. So Miss Twinkleton has two distinct and separate phases of being— Every night, the moment the young ladies have retired to rest, does Miss Twinkleton smarten up her curls a little, brighten up her eyes a little, and become a sprightlier Miss Twinkleton than the young ladies have ever seen. Every night, at the same hour, does Miss Twinkleton resume the topics of the previous night, comprehending the tenderer scandal of Cloisterham, of which she has no knowledge whatever by day, and references to a certain season at Tumbridge Wells, airily called by Miss Twinkleton in this state of her existence, the Wells, notably the season wherein a certain finished gentleman, compassionately called by Miss Twinkleton in this state of her existence, foolish Mr. Porters, revealed an homage of the heart, whereof Miss Twinkleton— in her scholastic state of existence, is as ignorant as a granite pillar. Miss Twinkleton's companion, in both states of existence, and equally adaptable to either, is one Mrs. Tisher, a deferential widow with a weak back, a chronic sigh, and a suppressed voice, who looks after the young lady's wardrobes, and leads them to infer that she has seen better days. Perhaps this is the reason why it is an article of faith with the servants, handed down from race to race, that the departed Tisha was a hairdresser. The pet pupil of the nun's house is Miss Rosa Bud, of course called Rosebud, wonderfully pretty, wonderfully childish, wonderfully whimsical. An awkward interest. Awkward because romantic, attaches to Miss Budd in the minds of the young ladies on account of its being known to them that a husband has been chosen for her by will and bequest, and that her guardian is bound down to bestow her on that husband when he comes of age. Miss Twinkleton, in her seminarial state of existence, has combated the romantic aspect of this destiny, by affecting to shake her head over it, behind Miss Budd's dimpled shoulders, and to brood on the unhappy lot of that doomed little victim. But with no better effect, possibly some unfelt touch of foolish Mr. Porter's has undermined the endeavour, than to evoke from the young ladies a unanimous bedchamber cry of, "'Oh, what a pretending old thing Miss Twinkleton is, my dear!' The nun's house is never in such a state of flutter as when this allotted husband calls to see little Rosebud. It is unanimously understood by the young ladies that he is lawfully entitled to this privilege, and that if Miss Twinkleton disputed it, she would be instantly taken up and transported. When his ring at the gate-bell is expected or takes place, Every young lady who can, under any pretense, look out of the window, looks out of the window, while every young lady who is practising, practises out of tune, and the French class becomes so demoralised that the mark goes round as briskly as the bottle at a convivial party in the last century. On the afternoon of the day next, after the dinner of two at the gate-house— THE BELL IS RUNG WITH THE USUAL FLUTTERING RESULTS. MR EDWIN DROOD TO SEE MISS ROSA. THIS IS THE ANNOUNCEMENT OF THE PARLOUR MAID-IN-CHIEF. MISS TWINKLETON, WITH AN EXEMPLARY AIR OF melancholy ON HER, TURNS TO THE SACRIFICE AND SAYS, YOU MAY GO DOWN, MY DEAR. MISS Bud GOES DOWN, FOLLOWED BY ALL EYES. Mr. Edwin Drood is waiting in Miss Twinkleton's own parlour. A dainty room with nothing more directly scholastic in it than a terrestrial and a celestial globe. These expressive machines imply, to parents and to guardians, that even when Miss Twinkleton retires into the bosom of privacy, duty may at any moment compel her to become a sort of wandering Jewess, scouring the earth and soaring through the skies in search of knowledge for her pupils the last new maid who has never seen the young gentleman miss rosa is engaged to and who is making his acquaintance between the hinges of the open door left open for the purpose stumbles guiltily down the kitchen stairs as a charming little apparition with its face concealed by a little silk apron thrown over its head glides into the parlour. Oh, it is so ridiculous, says the apparition, stopping and shrinking. Don't, Eddie. Don't what, Rosa? Don't come any nearer, please. It is so absurd. What is absurd, Rosa? The whole thing is. It is so absurd to be an engaged orphan, and it is so absurd to have the girls and the servants scuttling about after one, like mice in the wainscot, and it is so absurd to be called upon. The apparition appears to have a thumb in the corner of its mouth while making this complaint. You give me an affectionate reception, pussy, I must say. Well, I will in a minute, Eddie, but I can't just yet. How are you? very shortly. I am unable to reply that I am much the better for seeing you, pussy, inasmuch as I see nothing of you. This second remonstrance brings a dark, bright, pouting eye out from a corner of the apron. But it swiftly becomes invisible again, as the apparition exclaims, Oh, my goodness! You have had half your hair cut off! "'I should have done better to have had my head cut off, I think,' says Edwin, "'rumpling the hair in question, with a fierce glance at the looking-glass "'and giving an impatient stamp. "'Shall I go?' "'No, you needn't go just yet, Eddie. "'The girls would all be asking questions why you went. "'Once for all, Rosa, will you uncover that ridiculous little head of yours "'and give me a welcome?' THE APRON IS PULLED OFF THE CHILDISH HEAD, AND ITS WEARER REPLIES, YOU'RE VERY WELCOME, EDDIE. THERE, I'M SURE THAT'S NICE. SHAKE HANDS. NO, I CAN'T KISS YOU, BECAUSE I'VE GOT AN ASSIDUATED DROP IN MY MOUTH. ARE YOU AT ALL GLAD TO SEE ME, PUSSY? OH, YES, I'M DREADFULLY GLAD. GO AND SIT DOWN, MISS TWINKLETON. It is the custom of that excellent lady, when these visits occur, to appear every three minutes, either in her own person or in that of Miss Tisha, and lay an offering on the Shrine of Propriety, by affecting to look for some desiderated article. On the present occasion Miss Twinkleton, gracefully gliding in and out, says in passing, "'How do you do, Mr. Drood? Very glad, indeed, to have the pleasure,' "'Pray excuse me—tweezers. Thank you.' "'I got the gloves last evening, Eddie, and I like them very much. They are beauties.' "'Well, that's something,' the affianced replies, half grumbling. "'The smallest encouragement gratefully received. And how did you pass your birthday, pussy?' "'Delightfully! Everybody gave me a present.' And we had a feast, and we had a ball at night. A feast and a ball, eh? These occasions seem to go off tolerably well without me, pussy. Delightfully, cries Rosa, in a quite spontaneous manner, And without the least pretense of reserve. And what was the feast? Tarts, oranges, jellies, and shrimps. Any partners at the ball? We dance with one another, of course, sir. But some of the girls made game to be their brothers. It was so droll. Did anybody make game to be— To be you? Oh, dear, yes! cries Rosa, laughing with great enjoyment. That was the first thing done. I hope she did it pretty well, says Edwin, rather doubtfully. Oh, it was excellent! I wouldn't dance with you, you know. Edwin scarcely seems to see the force of this, begs to know if he may take the liberty to ask why. Because I was so tired of you, returns Rosa, but she quickly adds, and pleadingly too, seeing displeasure in his face, Dear Eddie, you were just as tired of me, you know. "'Did I say so, Rosa?' "'Say so? Do you ever say so?' "'No, you only showed it.' "'Oh, she did it so well!' cries Rosa, in a sudden ecstasy with her counterfeit betrothed. "'It strikes me that she must be a devilish impudent girl,' says Edwin Drood. "'And so, pussy, you have passed your last birthday in this old house?' Ah, yes, Rosa clasps her hands, looks down with a sigh, and shakes her head. You seem to be sorry, Rosa. I am sorry for the poor old place. Somehow I feel as if it would miss me, when I am gone so far away, so young. Perhaps we had better stop short, Rosa. She looks up at him with a swift, bright look. Next moment shakes her head, sighs, and looks down again. That is to say, is it, Pussy, that we are both resigned? She nods her head again, and after a short silence, quaintly bursts out with, You know we must be married, and married from here, Eddie, or the poor girls will be so dreadfully disappointed. For the moment there is more of compassion, both for her and for himself, in her affianced husband's face, than there is of love. He checks the look and asks, Shall I take you out for a walk, Rosa dear? Rosa dear does not seem at all clear on this point, until her face which has been comically reflective brightens. Oh, yes, Eddie, let us go for a walk, and I'll tell you what we'll do. "'You shall pretend that you are engaged to somebody else, "'and I'll pretend that I am not engaged to anybody, "'and then we shan't quarrel.' "'Do you think that will prevent our falling out, Rosa?' "'I know it will. "'Hush! Pretend to look out of window. "'Mrs. Tisha!' "'Through a fortuitous concourse of accidents,' THE MATRONLY Tisha HEAVES IN SIGHT, SAYS, IN RUSTLING THROUGH THE ROOM, LIKE THE LEGENDARY GHOST OF A DOWAGER IN SILKEN SKIRTS, I HOPE I SEE MR. DRUDE WELL, THOUGH I NEEDN'T ASK IF I MAY JUDGE FROM HIS COMPANION. I TRUST I DISTURB NO ONE, BUT THERE WAS A PAPER KNIFE. OH, THANK YOU, I AM SURE, AND DISAPPEARS WITH HER PRIZE. One other thing you must do, Eddie, to oblige me, says Rosebud, the moment we get into the street. You must put me outside, and keep close to the house yourself, squeeze and graze yourself against it. By all means, Rosa, if you wish it. Might I ask why? Oh, because I don't want the girls to see you. "'It's a fine day, but would you like me to carry an umbrella up?' "'Don't be foolish, sir. You haven't got polished leather boots on,' pouting with one shoulder raised. "'Perhaps that might escape the notice of the girls, even if they did see me,' remarks Edwin, looking down at his boots with a sudden distaste for them. "'Nothing escapes their notice, sir and then I know what would happen, some of them would begin reflecting on me by saying, for they are free, that they never will on any account engage themselves to lovers without polished leather boots. Hark, Miss Twinkleton, I'll ask for leave." That discreet lady being indeed heard without, inquiring of nobody in a blandly conversational tone as she advances, "'Eh? Indeed. Are you quite sure you saw my mother-of-pearl button-holder "'on the work-table in my room?' "'Is at once solicited for walking leave, and graciously accords it. "'And soon the young couple go out of the nun's house, "'taking all precautions against the discovery of the so vitally defective boots "'of Mr. Edwin Drood. Precautions, let us hope, Effective for the peace of Mrs. Edwin Drood that is to be. Which way shall we take, Rosa? Rosa replies, I want to go to the Lumps of Delight shop. To the— A Turkish sweetmeat, sir, my gracious me! Don't you understand anything? Call yourself an engineer and not know that. Why, how should I know it, Rosa— "'Because I am very fond of them. "'But, oh, I forgot what we are to pretend. "'No, you needn't know anything about them. "'Never mind.' "'So he is gloomily borne off to the Lumps of Delight shop, "'where Rosa makes her purchase, "'and, after offering some to him, "'which he rather indignantly declines, "'begins to partake of it with great zest.' previously taking off and rolling up a pair of little pink gloves, like rose-leaves, and occasionally putting her little pink fingers into her rosy lips, to cleanse them from the dust of delight that comes off the lumps. Now be a good-tempered Eddie, and pretend. And so you are engaged. And so I am engaged. Is she nice? Charming. Charming tall? Immensely tall, Rosa being short. Must be gawky, I should think, is Rosa's quiet commentary. I beg your pardon, not at all, contradiction rising in him. What is termed a fine woman, a splendid woman? Big nose, no doubt, is the quiet commentary again. Not a little one, certainly, is the quick reply, Rosa's being a little one. "'Long, pale nose, with a red knob in the middle. I know the sort of nose,' says Rosa, with a satisfied nod, and tranquilly enjoying the lumps. "'You don't know the sort of nose, Rosa, with some warmth, because it's nothing of the kind.' "'Not a pale nose, Eddie?' "'No,' determined not to assent. "'A red nose!' Oh, I don't like red noses. However, to be sure, she can always powder it. She would scorn to powder it, says Edwin, becoming heated. Would she? What a stupid thing she must be. Is she stupid in everything? No, in nothing. After a pause in which the whimsically wicked face has not been unobservant of him, Rosa says— And this most sensible of creatures likes the idea of being carried off to Egypt, does she, Edie? Yes, she takes a sensible interest in triumphs of engineering skill, especially when they are to change the whole condition of an undeveloped country.
0: "'Law!'
2: says Rosa, shrugging her shoulders, with a little laugh of wonder. "'Do you object?' Edwin inquires, with a majestic turn of his eyes downward upon the fairy figure— "'Do you object, Rosa, to her feeling that interest?' "'Object? My dear Eddie! But really, doesn't she hate boilers and things?' "'I can answer for her not being so idiotic as to hate boilers,' he returns with angry emphasis, "'though I cannot answer for her views about things, really not understanding what things are meant.' "'But doesn't she hate Arabs and Turks and fellers and people?' "'Certainly not,' very firmly. "'At least she must hate the pyramids. Come, Eddie.' "'Why should she be such a little tall—I mean goose—as to hate the pyramids, Rosa?' "'Ah, you should hear Miss Twinkleton, often nodding her head and much enjoying the lumps.' "'bore about them, and then you wouldn't ask. "'Tiresome old burying-grounds. "'Ices and ibises and cheopses and pharoses. "'Who cares about them?' "'And then there was Belzoni or somebody "'dragged out by the legs, half-choked with bats and dust. "'All the girls say serve him right.' And hope it hurt him, and wish he had been quite choked. The two youthful figures side by side, but not now arm in arm, wander discontentedly about the old clothes, and each sometimes stops and slowly imprints a deeper footstep in the fallen leaves. Well, says Edwin, after a lengthy silence. According to custom, we can't get on, Rosa. Rosa tosses her head and says she don't want to get on. That's a pretty sentiment, Rosa, considering. Considering what? If I say what, you'll go wrong again. You'll go wrong, you mean, Eddie? Don't be ungenerous. Ungenerous? I like that. Then I don't like that. "'And so I tell you plainly,' Rosa pouts. "'Now, Rosa, I put it to you. "'Who disparaged my profession, my destination?' "'You are not going to be buried in the pyramids, I hope?' "'She interrupts, arching her delicate eyebrows. "'You never said you were. "'If you are, why haven't you mentioned it to me? "'I can't find out your plans by instinct.' "'Now, Rosa, you know very well what I mean, my dear.' "'Well, then, why did you begin with your detestable red-nosed giantesses?' "'And she would, she would, she would, she would, she would powder it!' cries Rosa, with a little burst of comically contradictory spleen. "'Somehow or other I can never come right in these discussions.' "'says Edwin, sighing and becoming resigned. "'How is it possible, sir, that you ever can become right "'when you're always wrong? "'And as to Belonzi, I suppose he's dead. "'I'm sure I hope he is. "'And how can his legs or his chokes concern you?' "'It is nearly time for your return, Rosa. "'We have not had a very happy walk, have we?' "'A happy walk! A detestably unhappy walk, sir! "'If I go upstairs the moment I get in and cry till I can't take my dancing lesson, "'you are responsible, mind.' "'Let us be friends, Rosa!' "'Oh!' cries Rosa, shaking her head and bursting into real tears. "'I wish we could be friends!' "'It's because we can't be friends that we try one another so. "'I am a young little thing, Eddie, to have an old heartache. "'But I really, really have sometimes. "'Don't be angry. "'I know you have won yourself too often. "'We should both of us have done better "'if what is to be had been left what might have been.' I am quite a serious thing now, and not teasing you. Let each of us forbear this one time on our own account, and on the others. Disarmed by this glimpse of a woman's nature in the spoilt child, though for an instant disposed to resent it as seeming to involve the enforced infliction of himself upon her, Edwin Drood stands watching her, as she childishly cries and sobs, with both hands to the handkerchief at her eyes, and then she becoming more composed, and indeed beginning in her young inconstancy to laugh at herself for having been so moved, leads her to a seat hard by under the elm-trees. One clear word of understanding, Pussy dear. I am not clever out of my own line, Now I come to think of it, I don't know that I am particularly clever in it, but I want to do right. There is not—there may be—I really don't see my way to say what I want to say, but I must say it before we part. There is not any other young—'Oh, no, Eddie! It's generous of you to ask me, but no, no, no!' They have come very near to the cathedral windows and at this moment the organ and the choir sound out sublimely. As they sit listening to the solemn swell, the confidence of last night rises in young Edwin Rude's mind, and he thinks how unlike this music is to that discordance. "'I fancy I can distinguish Jack's voice,' is his remark in a low tone in connection with the train of thought. "'Take me back at once, please.' urges his affianced, quickly laying her light hand upon his wrist. They will all be coming out directly. Let us go away. Oh, what a resounding chord! But don't let us stop to listen to it. Let us get away. Her hurry is over as soon as they have passed out of the close. They go arm in arm now, gravely and deliberately enough, along the old high street, to the nun's house. At the gate, the street being within sight empty, Edwin bends down his face to rosebuds. She remonstrates, laughing, and is a childish schoolgirl again. Eddie, no! I'm too sticky to be kissed! But give me your hand, and I'll blow a kiss into that. He does so. She breathes a light breath into it, and asks, retaining it, and looking into it. Now say, what do you see? See, Rosa. Why, I thought you Egyptian boys could look into a hand, and see all sorts of phantoms. Can't you see a happy future? For certain. Neither of them sees a happy present, as the gate opens and closes, and one goes in, and the other goes away. End of chapter 3 Read by Alan Chant of Tunbridge, Kent, England, during the summer of 2007 chapter 4 of the mystery of edwin drood this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org recording by alan chant the mystery of edwin drood the unfinished novel by charles dickens chapter 4 mr sapsy ACCEPTING THE JACKASS AS THE TYPE OF SELF-SUFFICIENT STUPIDITY AND CONCEIT, A CUSTOM PERHAPS, LIKE SOME FEW OTHER CUSTOMS, MORE CONVENTIONAL THAN FAIR, than THE PUREST JACKASS IN CLOISTRUM IS MR. THOMAS SAPSEY, AUCTIONEER. MR. SAPSEY DRESSES AT THE DEAN. HE HAS BEEN BOWED TO FOR THE DEAN, IN MISTAKE, has even been spoken to in the street as My Lord, under the impression that he was the bishop come down unexpectedly, without his chaplain. Mr. Sapsey is very proud of this, and of his voice, and of his style. He has even, in selling landed property, tried the experiment of slightly intoning in his pulpit— TO MAKE HIMSELF MORE LIKE WHAT HE TAKES TO BE THE GENUINE ECCLESIASTICAL ARTICLE. SO, IN ENDOWING A SALE BY A PUBLIC AUCTION, MR. SAPSEY FINISHES OFF WITH AN AIR OF BESTOWING A BENEDICTION ON THE ASSEMBLED BROKERS, WHICH LEAVES THE REAL DEAN, A MODEST AND WORTHY GENTLEMAN, FAR BEHIND. MR. SAPSEY HAS MANY ADMIRERS. Indeed, the proposition is carried by a large local majority, even including non-believers in his wisdom, that he is a credit to cloisterham. He possesses the great qualities of being portentous and dull, and of having a role in his speech, and another role in his gait, not to mention a certain gravely flowing action with his hands, as if he were presently going to confirm the individual with whom he holds discourse, much nearer sixty years of age than fifty, with a flowing outline of stomach and horizontal creases in his waistcoat, reputed to be rich, voting at elections in the strictly respectable interest, morally satisfied that nothing but he himself has grown since he was a baby, how can dunder-headed Mr. Sapsy be otherwise than a credit to Cloisterham and society? Mr. Sapsy's premises are in the high street, over against the nun's house. They are of about the period of the nun's house, irregularly modernised here and there, as steadily deteriorating generations found more and more, that they preferred air and light to fever and the plague. Over the doorway is a wooden effigy, about half life-size, respecting Mr. Saps's father, in a curly wig and toga, in the act of selling. The chastity of the idea, and the natural appearance of the little finger, hammer, and pulpit, have been much admired. Mr. Sapsy sits in his dull ground-floor sitting-room, giving first on his paved backyard, and then on his railed-off garden. Mr. Sapsy has a bottle of port wine on a table before the fire. The fire is an early luxury, but pleasant on the cool, chilly autumn evening, and is characteristically attended by his portrait, his eight-day clock, and his weather-glass characteristically because he would uphold himself against mankind, his weather-glass against weather, and his clock against time. By Mr. Sapsy's side on the table are a writing-desk and writing materials. Glancing at a scrap of manuscript, Mr. Sapsy reads it to himself with a lofty air, and then slowly pacing the room with his thumbs in the armholes of his waistcoat, Repeats it from memory, so internally, though with much dignity, that the word Ethelinda is alone audible. There are three clean wine glasses in a tray on the table. His serving maid entering and announcing, "Mr. Jasper is come, sir." Mr. Sapsey waves, "Admit him," and draws two wine glasses from the rack, as being claimed glad to see you sir i congratulate myself on having the honour of receiving you here for the first time mr sapsey does the honours of his house in this wise you are very good the honour is mine and the self-congratulation is mine you are pleased to say so sir but I do assure you that it is a satisfaction to me to receive you in my humble home, and that is what I would not say to everybody. Ineffable loftiness on Mr. Saps's part accompanies these words, as leaving the sentence to be understood. You will not easily believe that your society can be a satisfaction to a man like myself? "'Nevertheless, it is.' "'I have for some time desired to know you, Mr. Sapsey, "'And I, sir, have long known you by reputation as a man of taste. "'Let me fill your glass. "'I will give you, sir,' says Mr. Sapsey, filling his own. "'When the French come over, may we meet them at Dover.' This was a patriotic toast in Mr. Sapsey's infancy, and he is therefore fully convinced of its being appropriate to any subsequent era. "'You can scarcely be ignorant, Mr. Sapsey," observes Jasper, watching the auctioneer with a smile, as the latter stretches out his legs before the fire. "'That you know the world!' "'Well, sir,' is the chuckling reply, i think i know something of it your reputation for that knowledge has always interested and surprised me and made me wish to know you for cloisterham is a little place cooped up in it myself i know nothing beyond it and feel it to be a very little place if i have not gone to foreign countries young man mr sapsey begins and then stops "'You will excuse me calling you young man, Mr. Jasper? "'You are much my junior.' "'By all means.' "'If I had not gone to foreign countries, young man, "'foreign countries have come to me. "'They have come to me in the way of business, "'and I have improved upon my opportunities. "'Put it that I take an inventory or make a catalogue. I see a French clock. I never saw him before in my life, but I instantly lay my finger on him and say Paris. I see some cups and saucers of Chinese make, equally strangers to me personally. I put my finger on them then and there, and I say Peking, Nankin, and Canton. It is the same with Japan, with Egypt, and with bamboo and sandalwood from the East Indies. I put my finger on them all. I have put my finger on the North Pole before now, and said, Spear of Eskimo make, for half a pint of pale sherry. Really? A very remarkable way, Mr. Sapsy, of acquiring a knowledge of men and things— i mention it sir mr sapsey rejoins with unspeakable complacency because as i say it don't do to boast of what you are but show how you came to be it and then you prove it most interesting we were to speak of the late mrs sapsey we were sir mr sapsey fills both glasses and takes the decanter into safe-keeping again. Before I consult your opinion as a man of taste on this little trifle, holding it up, which is but a trifle, and still has required some thought, sir, some little fever of the brow, I ought perhaps to describe the character of the late Mrs. Sapsy, now dead three-quarters of a year. Mr. Jasper, in the act of yawning behind his wine-glass, puts down that screen and calls up a look of interest. It is a little impaired in its expressiveness by his having a shut-up gape still to dispose of with watering eyes. "'Half a dozen years ago, or so,' Mr. Sapsy proceeds, "'when I had enlarged my mind up to—' I will not say to what it is now, for that might seem to aim at too much, but up to the pitch of wanting another mind to be absorbed in it. I cast my eye about me for a nuptial partner, because, as I say, it is not good for man to be alone. Mr. Jasper appears to commit this original idea to memory. Miss Broberty at that time kept, I will not call it the rival establishment to the establishment at the nun's house opposite, but I will call it the other parallel establishment downtown. The world did have it that she showed a passion for attending my sales when they took place on half-holidays or in vacation time, the world did put it about that she admired my style the world did notice that as time flowed by my style became traceable in the dictation exercises of miss robert pupils young man a whisper even sprang up in obscure malignity that one ignorant and besotted churl a parent so committed himself as to object to it by name. But I do not believe this, for is it likely that any human creature in his right senses would so lay himself open to be pointed at by what I call the finger of scorn?" Mr. Jasper shakes his head. Not in the least likely. Mr. Sapsy, in a grandiloquent state of absence of mind, seems to refill his visitor's glass, which is full already, and does really refill his own, which is empty. Miss Broberty's being, young man, was deeply imbued with homage to mind. She revered mind when launched or, as I say, precipitated on an extensive knowledge of the world. When I made my proposal, she did me the honour to be so overshadowed with a species of awe as to be able to articulate only the two words, O Thou, meaning myself, her limpid blue eyes were fixed upon me, her semi-transparent hands were clasped together, pallor overspread her aquiline features, and though encouraged to proceed, she never did proceed a word further. I disposed of the parallel establishment by private contract, and we became as nearly one as could be expected under the circumstances. But she never could, and she never did, find a phrase satisfactory to her, perhaps too favourable estimate of my intellect. To the very last, feeble action of liver, she addressed me in the same unfinished terms, Mr. Jasper has closed his eyes as the auctioneer has deepened his voice. He now abruptly opens them and says, in unison with the deepened voice, "'Ah!' rather as if stopping himself on the extreme verge of adding, "'Men!' "'I have been since,' said Mr. Sapsy, with his legs stretched out and solemnly enjoying himself with the wine and the fire, what you behold me i have been a solitary mourner i have been since as i say wasting my evening conversation on the desert air i will not say that i have reproached myself but there have been times when i have asked myself the question what if her husband had been nearer on a level with her If she had not had to look up quite so high, what might the stimulating action have been upon the liver? Mr. Jasper says, with an appearance of having fallen into dreadfully low spirits, that he supposes it was to be. We can only suppose so, sir, Mr. Sapsey concedes. As I say, man— proposes, heaven disposes. It may or may not be putting the same thought in another form, but that is the way I put it. Mr. Jasper murmurs assent. And now, Mr. Jasper, resumes the auctioneer, producing his scrap of manuscript, Mrs. Saps's monument, having had full time to settle and dry, let me take your opinion as a man of taste on the inscription i have as i before remarked not without some little fever of the brow drawn out for it take it in your own hand the setting out of the lines requires to be followed with the eye as well as the contents with the mind Mr. Jasper complying sees and reads the following Ethel Linda, reverential wife of Mr. Thomas Sapsey, auctioneer, valuer, estate agent, etc., of this city, whose knowledge of the world, though somewhat extensive, never brought him acquainted with a spirit more capable of looking up to him stranger pause and ask thyself the question canst thou do likewise if not with a blush retire Mr. Sapsey, having risen and stationed himself with his back to the fire, for the purpose of observing the effect of these lines on the countenance of a man of taste, consequently has his face towards the door when his serving-maid, again appearing, announces, Durdles is come, sir. He promptly draws forth and fills the third wine-glass, as now being claimed, and replies, Show Durdles in. Admirable, quoth Mr. Jasper, handing back the paper. You approve, sir? Impossible not to approve. Striking, characteristic, and complete. The auctioneer inclines his head as one accepting his due, and giving a receipt, and invites the entering Durdles to take off that glass of wine, handing the same, for it will warm him. Durdles is a stonemason, chiefly in the gravestone tomb and monument way, and wholly in their colour from head to foot. No man is better known in Cloisterham. He is the chartered libertine of the place. Fame trumpets him a wonderful workman, which, for aught that anybody knows, he may be, as he never works, and a wonderful sot, which everybody knows he is. With the cathedral crypt he is better acquainted than any living authority. It may even be than any dead one. It is said that the intimacy of this acquaintance began in his habitually resorting to that secret place to lock out the cloistrum boy populace and sleep off fumes of liquor, he having ready access to the cathedral as contractor for rough repairs. Be this as it may, he does know much about it, and in the demolition of impedimental fragments of wall, buttress, and pavement has seen strange sights. He often speaks of himself in the third person, perhaps being a little misty as to his own identity when he narrates, perhaps impartially adopting the cloistrum nomenclature in reference to a character of acknowledged distinction. Thus he will say, touching his strange sights, "'Durdles come upon the old chap,' in reference to a buried magnate of ancient times and high degrees, by striking right into the coffin with his pick. The old chap gave Durdles a look with his open eyes, as much as to say, "'Is your name Durdles?' "'Why, my man, I've been waiting for you a devil of a time!' And then he turned to Powder.' with a two-foot rule always in his pocket, and a mason's hammer all but always in his hand, Durdles goes continually sounding and tapping all about and about the cathedral, and whenever he says to Tope, "'Tope, is another olden in here?' Tope announces it to the dean as an established discovery. In a suit of coarse flannel with horn-buttons, a yellow neckerchief with draggled ends, an old hat more russet-coloured than black, and laced boots of the hue of his stony calling, Durdle's leads a hazy, gypsy sort of life, carrying his dinner about with him in a small bundle, and sitting on all manner of tombstones to dine. This dinner of Durdle's has become quite a cloisterum institution— not only because of his never appearing in public without it, but because of its having been on certain renowned occasions taken into custody along with Durdles, as drunk and incapable, and exhibited before the bench of justices at the town-hall. These occasions, however, have been few and far apart, Durdles being as seldom drunk as sober. For the rest... He is an old bachelor, and he lives in a small antiquated hole of a house that was never finished, supposed to have been built so far of stones stolen from the city wall. To this abode there is an approach, ankle-deep in stone chips, resembling a petrified grove of tombstones, urns, draperies, and broken columns in all stages of sculpture. Herein two journeymen incessantly chip, while two other journeymen, who face each other, incessantly saw stone, dipping as regularly in and out of their sheltering sentry-boxes as if they were mechanical figures, emblematical of time and death. To Durdles, when he had consumed his glass of port, Mr. Sapsy entrusts that precious effort of his muse. Durdles unfeelingly takes out his two-foot rule, and measures the lines calmly, alloying them with stone grit. "'This is for the monument, is it, Mr. Sapsy?' "'The inscription, yes.' Mr. Sapsy waits for its effect on a common mind. "'It'll come in to an eighth of an inch,' says Durdles. "'Your servant, Mr. Jasper, hope I see you well.' "'How are you, Durdles?' "'I've got a touch of the tomatism on me, Mr. Jasper, but that I must expect.' "'You mean the rheumatism?' says Sapsy in a sharp tone. He is nettled by having his composition so mechanically received. "'No, I don't. I mean, Mr. Sapsy, the tomatism. "'It's another sort from rheumatism. "'Mr. Jasper knows what Durdles means.' You get among the tombs afore it's well light on a winter morning, and keep on, as the catechism says, a-walking in the same all the days of your life, and you'll know what dirtles means. It's a bitter cold place, Mr. Jasper assents, with an antipathetic shiver. And if it's bitter cold for you up in the chancel, with a lot of live breath smoking out about you, WHAT THE BITTERNESS IS TO DURDLES, DOWN IN THE CRYPT AMONG THE EARTHY DAMPS THERE, AND THE DEAD BREATH OF THE OLD URNS, RETURNS THAT INDIVIDUAL, DURDLES LEAVES FOR YOU TO JUDGE. IS THIS TO BE PUT IN HAND AT ONCE, MR. Sapsy? MR. SAPSEY, WITH AN AUTHOR'S ANXIETY TO RUSH INTO PUBLICATION, REPLIES THAT IT CANNOT BE OUT OF HAND TOO SOON. "'You had better let me have the key, then,' says Durdles. "'Why, man, it's not to be put inside the monument.' "'Durdles knows where it's to be put, Mr. Sapsy. No man better. "'Ask ere a man in Cloistram whether Durdles knows his work.' "'Mr. Sapsy rises, takes a key from a drawer, "'unlocks an iron safe let into the wall, and takes from it another key.' When Dirtles puts a touch or a finish upon his work, no matter where, inside or outside, Dirtles likes to look at his work all round and see that his work is a doing him credit, Dirtles explains doggedly. The key proffered him by the bereaved widower being a large one. He slips his two-foot rule into a side pocket of his flannel trousers made for it and deliberately opens his flannel coat, and opens the mouth of a large breast-pocket within it, before taking the key to place it in that repository. "'Why, Durdles!' exclaims Jasper, looking on amused. "'You are undermined with pockets!' "'And I carries weight in them too, Mr. Jasper. Feel those!' producing two other large keys. "'Hand me Mr. Sapsies likewise!' "'Surely this is the heaviest of the three. "'You'll find a much of a muchness, I expect,' says Durdles. "'They all belong to monuments. "'They all open Durdles' work. "'Durdles keeps the keys of his work, mostly. "'Not that they're much used.' "'By the by,' it comes into Jasper's mind to say, "'as he idly examines the keys, "'I have been going to ask you many a day "'and have always forgotten. "'You know they sometimes call you stony Durdles, don't you?' "'Cloisterham knows me as Durdles, Mr Jasper.' "'I am aware of that, of course. "'But the boys sometimes—' "'Oh, if you mind them young imps of boys!' "'Durdles gruffly interrupts. "'I don't mind them any more than you do. "'But there was a discussion the other day among the choir— WHETHER STONY STOOD FOR TONY, CLINKING ONE KEY AGAINST ANOTHER. TAKE CARE OF THE WARDS, MR JASPER. OR WHETHER STONY STOOD FOR STEPHEN, CLINKING WITH A CHANGE OF KEYS. YOU CAN'T MAKE A PITCH-PIPE OF A MR JASPER. OR WHETHER THE NAME COMES FROM YOUR TRADE. HOW STANDS THE FACT? MR JASPER WEIGHS THE THREE KEYS IN HIS HANDS lifts his head from the idly stooping attitude over the fire, and delivers the keys to Durdles with an ingenious and friendly face. But the stony one is a gruff one likewise, and that hazy state of his is always an uncertain state, highly conscious of its dignity, and prone to take offence. He drops his two keys back into his pocket one by one, and buttons them up he takes his dinner bundle from the chair back on which he hung it when he came in he distributes the weight he carries by tying the third key up in it as though he were an ostrich and liked to dine off cold iron and he gets out of the room deigning no word of answer mr sapsey then proposes a hit at backgammon which seasoned with his own improving conversation and, terminating in a supper of cold roast beef and salad, beguiles the golden evening until pretty late. Mr. Sapsy's wisdom being, in its delivery to mortals, rather of the diffuse than the epigrammatic order, is by no means expended even then. But his visitor intimates that he will come back for more of the precious commodity on future occasions, and Mr. Sapsy lets him off for the present. To ponder on the instalment he carries away. End of chapter 4. Read by Alan Chant of Tunbridge, Kent, England, during the summer of 2007. Chapter 5 of The Mystery of Edwin Drood. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Alan Chant. The Mystery of Edwin Drood, the Unfinished Novel by Charles Dickens. Chapter 5 Mr. Durdles and Friend John Jasper, on his way home through the Close, is brought to a standstill by the spectacle of stony durdles, dinner bundle and all, leaning his back against the iron railing of the burial-ground, enclosing it from the old cloister arches, and a hideous small boy in rags flinging stones at him as a well-defined mark in the moonlight. Sometimes the stones hit him, and sometimes they miss him, but Durdles seems indifferent to either fortune. The hideous small boy, on the contrary, whenever he hits Durdles, blows a whistle of triumph through a jagged gap, convenient for the purpose, in the front of his mouth, where half his teeth are wanting, and whenever he misses him, yelps out, Maldigan! and tries to atone for the failure by taking a more correct and vicious aim. "'What are you doing to the man?' demands Jasper, "'stepping out into the moonlight from the shade. "'Making a cock shy of him,' replies the hideous small boy. "'Give me those stones in your hand.' "'Yes, I'll give em you down your throat if you come to the kitchen hold of me,' "'says the small boy, shaking himself loose and backing. I'll smash your eye if you don't look out.' "'Baby devil that you are!' What has the man done to you? He won't go home. What is that to you? It gives me a vape me to pelf him home if I catches him out too late, says the boy, and then chants like a little savage, half stumbling and half dancing among the rags and laces of his dilapidated boots.
0: Fidi Vid I catches him out at the ten. de Then he don't go home. Then I shry Vidi Vidi Ve- cock, warning
2: with a comprehensive sweep on the last word and one more delivery at Durdles This would seem to be a poetical note of preparation agreed upon as a caution to Durdles to stand clear if he can, or to betake himself homeward. John Jasper invites the boy with a beck of his head to follow him feeling it hopeless to drag him or coax him, and crosses to the iron railing where the stony and stoned one is profoundly meditating. "'Do you know this thing, this child?' asks Jasper, at a loss for a word that will define this thing. "'Deputy,' says Durdles with a knot. "'Is that it his name?' "'Deputy!' asserts durdles i man-servant up at the traveller's tap. me in gasfork's guarding. this thing explains all us man-servants at travellers lodgings is named deputy when we are chock full and the travellers is all abed i comes out for me elf then withdrawing into the road and taking aim he resumes there's divy
0: friend i catches him out of ten
2: hold your hand cries Jasper. And don't throw while I stand so near him, or I'll kill you. Come, Durdles, let me walk home with you to-night. Shall I carry your bundle? Not on any account, replies Durdles, adjusting it. Durdles was making his reflections here when you come up, sir, surrounded by his works like a popular author. Your own brother-in-law. Introducing a sarcophagus within the railing, white and cold in the moonlight. Mrs. Sapsy, Introducing the monument of that devoted wife. Late incumbent. Introducing the reverend gentleman's broken column. Departed assessed taxes. Introducing a vase and towel, standing on what might represent the cake of soap. "'former pastry-cook and muffin-maker, much respected.' Introducing Gravestone. "'All safe and sound here, sir, and all Dirtle's work. "'Of the common folk that is merely bundled up in turf and brambles, "'the less said the better. "'A poor lot soon forgot.' "'This creature, Deputy, is behind us,' says Jasper, looking back. "'Is he to follow us?' The relations between Durdles and Deputy are of a capricious kind, for on Durdles turning himself about with a slow gravity of beery suddenness, Deputy makes a pretty wide circuit into the road and stands on the defensive. You never cry witty warning before you begun to night, says Durdles, unexpectedly reminded of or imagining an injury. You lie, I veid,' says Deputy, in his only form of polite contradiction. "'Own brother, sir,' observes Durdles, turning himself about again, and as unexpectedly forgetting his offence as he had recalled or conceived it. "'Own brother to Peter the Wild Boy. "'But I gave him an object in life.' "'At which he takes aim?' Mr. Jasper suggests. "'That's it, sir,' returns Durdles, quite satisfied, "'at which he takes aim. "'I took him in hand and gave him an object. "'What
0: was he before? A destroyer. "'What work did he do? Nothing but destruction. "'What did he earn by it? Short terms in cloister and jail.' Not a person, not a piece of property, not a winder, not a horse, nor a dog, nor a cat, nor a bird, nor a fowl, nor a pig, but what he stoned for want of an enlightened object. I put that enlightened object before him, and now he can turn his honest halfpenny by the three
2: a week. I wonder he has no competitors. "'He has plenty, Mr. Jasper, but he stones em all away. "'Now, I don't know what this scheme of mine comes to,' pursues Durdles, "'considering about it with the same sodden gravity. "'I don't know what you may precisely call it. "'It ain't a sort of a scheme of a national education?' "'I sure to say not,' replies Jasper. I should say not, assents Durdles. Then we won't try and give it a name. He still keeps behind us, repeats Jasper, looking over his shoulder. Is he to follow us? We can't help going round by the traveller's tuppenny. if we go the short way, which is the back way, Durdles answers, and we'll drop him there. So they go on deputy as a rear-rank one, taking open order, and invading the silence of the hour and place by stoning every wall, post, pillar, and other inanimate object by the deserted way. Is there anything new down in the crypt, Durdles? asks John Jasper. Anything old, I think you mean, growls Durdles. It ain't a spot for novelty any new discovery on your part i mean there's an olden under the seventh pillar on the left as you go down the broken steps of the little underground chapel as formerly was i make him out so far as i've made him out yet to be one of them old uns with a crook to judge from the size of the passages in the walls and of the steps and doors by which they come and went them crooks must have been a good deal in the way of the oldens. two on a meeting promiscuous might have itched one another by the might a pretty often i should say without any endeavour to correct the literality of this opinion jasper surveys his companion covered from head to foot with old mortar lime and stone grit as though he Jasper were getting imbued with a romantic interest in his weird life. "'Yours is a curious existence.' Without furnishing the least cue to the question, whether he receives this as a compliment or quite as the reverse, Durdles gruffly answers, "'Yours is another.' "'Well, inasmuch as my lot is cast in the same old earthy, chilly, never-changing place, yes.' But there is much more mystery and interest in your connection with the cathedral than in mine. Indeed, I am beginning to have some idea of asking you to take me on as a sort of student or free prentice under you, and to let me go about with you sometimes, and see some of these odd nooks in which you pass your days. The stony one replies in a general way, All right. EVERYBODY KNOWS WHERE TO FIND Durdles WHEN HE'S WANTED, WHICH, IF NOT STRICTLY TRUE, IS APPROXIMATELY SO, IF TAKEN TO EXPRESS THAT Durdles MAY ALWAYS BE FOUND IN A STATE OF VAGABONDAGE SOMEWHERE. WHAT I DWELL UPON MOST, SAYS JASPER, PURSUING HIS SUBJECT OF ROMANTIC INTEREST, IS THE REMARKABLE ACCURACY WITH WHICH YOU WOULD SEEM TO FIND OUT WHERE PEOPLE ARE BURIED. WHAT IS THE MATTER? That bundle is in your way. Let me hold it. Durdles has stopped and backed a little. Deputy, attentive to all his movements, immediately skirmishing into the road, and was looking about for some ledge or corner to place his bundle on, when thus relieved of it. Just you give me my hammer out of that, says Durdles, and I'll show you. Clink, clink, and his hammer is handed him. "'Now, look here, you pitch your note, don't you, Mr. Jasper?' "'Yes. So I sound for mine. I take my hammer and I tap.' Here he strikes the pavement, and the attentive deputy skirmishes at a rather wider range, as supposing that his head may be in requisition. "'I tap, tap, tap. Solid. I go on tapping.' Solid still, tap again, hollow hollow. Tap again, persevering. Solid in hollow, tap, tap, tap to try it better. Solid in hollow and inside solid hollow again. There you are, old and crumbled away in stone coffin in vault, astonishing. I have even done this, says Durdles, drawing out his two-foot rule, Deputy meanwhile skirmishing nearer, as suspecting that treasure may be about to be discovered which may somehow lead to his own enrichment, and the delicious treat of the discoverer's being hanged by the neck on his evidence until they are dead. Say that hammer of mine's a wall, my work. Two, four, and two is six. Measuring on the pavement, six foot inside that wall is Missus Sapsy. Not really Missus Sapsy. Say Missus Sapsy, her wall's thicker. But say Missus Sapsy, Durdle's taps. That wall represented by that hammer and says, after good sounding, something betwixt us. Sure enough. Some rubbish has been left in that same six-foot space by Durdles' men. Jasper opines that such accuracy is a gift. "'I wouldn't have it at a gift,' returns Durdles, by no means receiving the observation in good part. "'I worked it out for myself. Durdles comes by his knowledge through grubbing deep for it, and having it up by the roots when it don't want to come.' Halloa, are you, deputy?' Fiddy his deputy's shrill response, standing off again. "'Catch that ha'penny, and don't let me see any more of you to-night, after we come to the traveller's tupney, warning returns Deputy, having caught the ha'penny, and appearing by this mystic word to express his assent to the arrangements." They have but to cross what was once the vineyard, belonging to what was once the monastery, to come into the narrow back lane wherein stands the crazy wooden house of two low stories currently known as the Traveller's Tupney. A house all warped and distorted, like the morals of the travellers, with scant remains of a lattice-work porch over the door, and also of a rustic fence before its stamped-out garden, by reason of the travellers having been so bound to the premises by a tender sentiment, or so fond of having a fire by the roadside in the course of the day, that they can never be persuaded or threatened into departure without violently possessing themselves of some wooden forget-me-not, and bearing it off. The semblance of an inn is attempted to be given to this wretched place by fragments of conventional red curtaining in the windows, which rags are made muddily transparent in the night season by feeble lights of rush or cotton-dip burning dully in the close air of the inside. As Durdles and Jasper come near, they are addressed by an inscribed paper lantern over the door, setting forth the purport of the house— they are also addressed by some half-dozen other hideous small boys, whether twopenny lodgers or followers or hangers-on of such, who knows, who, as if attracted by some carrion scent of deputy in the air, start into the moonlight, as vultures might gather in the desert, and instantly fall to stoning him and one another. "'Stop, you young brutes!' cries Jasper angrily, "'and let us go by!' This remonstrance being received with yells and flying stones, according to a custom of late years comfortably established among the police regulations of our English communities, where Christians are stoned on all sides, as if the days of St. Stephen were revived, Durdle's remarks of the young savages with some point, that They haven't got an object, and leads the way down the lane. At the corner of the lane, Jasper, hotly enraged, checks his companion and looks back. All is silent. Next moment a stone coming rattling at his hat, and a distant yell of, FRIGHT COCK! RUNNING! Followed by a crow, as from some infernally hatched Chanticleer, apprising him under whose victorious fire he stands, he turns the corner into safety and takes Durdle's home. Durdle's stumbling among the litter of his stony yard, as if he were going to turn head-foremost into one of the unfinished tombs. John Jasper returns by another way to his gatehouse, and entering softly with his key finds his fire still burning. He takes from a locked press a peculiar-looking pipe, which he fills, but not with tobacco, and, having adjusted the contents of the bowl very carefully, with a little instrument, ascends an inner staircase of only a few steps, leading to two rooms. One of these is his own sleeping-chamber, the other is his nephew's. There is a light in each. His nephew lies asleep, calm and untroubled. John Jasper stands looking down upon him, his unlighted pipe in his hand, for some time with a fixed and deep attention. Then, hushing his footsteps, he passes to his own room, lights his pipe, and delivers himself to the spectres it invokes at midnight. End of chapter 5 Read by Alan Chant of Tunbridge, Kent, England, in the summer of 2007
1: Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Save big on brunch for mom. All in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each.
0: Then get flavorful Tyson natural boneless chicken breasts for 2.49 dollars a pound. All with your card and a digital
1: coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today.